Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiefman. Great to be with you here this afternoon. And today we would like to commemorate the Hebrew day on the calendar, Chaf Menachem Av, the 20th day in the month of Av, which is the yard site, the anniversary of passing of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson. Now the name Schneerson is likely familiar to you as the name, the surname of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak was the Rebbe's father. And on this day, the Rebbe would always mark his father's, the anniversary of his father's passing by saying Kaddish, of course, in his memory. And he would lead a Farbrengen, during which he would expound on his father's profound teachings and his legacy. So to mark this day, together we are going to learn about Reb Levik. I'd like to share with you some stories about him as well as share with you some insights of his beautiful and unique teachings. So let me just tell you a little bit about the man, a little biography, biographical uh, overview. Reb Levik was born into the Schneerson dynasty on Yud Ches Nisan, the 18th of Nisan in 1878. He was a great-grandson of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of Lubavitch, the third Lubavitch Rebbe, known as the Tzemach Tzedek. His son, who was born, his firstborn son, who was born on Yud Aleph Nisan, the 11th of Nisan in 1902, was later to become the Rebbe. In 1909, Rebbe Levik was called upon to serve as a rabbi of the main synagogue in Yekaterinoslav, which is today known as Dnepro in Ukraine. And so he and his family moved to this city. I think the Rebbe was born in the city called Nikolaev. Revlevik would serve as a rabbi in Yekaterinoslav for 32 years, the last 18 of which he was the chief rabbi. Yekaterinoslav was considered the central city of Ukraine for everything related to Judaism. So Jews from throughout the region would look to Reb Levik Schneerson for guidance. He served during very tumultuous, difficult times, a period that spanned the First World War, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Stalinist purges, very difficult period in our history in the past century. And unfortunately, during that period, atheism was the culture of the Soviet Union. It was really dangerous to be religious and even more dangerous to be a religious leader. Reb Levik was determined, fearless in his leadership of the Jewish community. He stood up to the Soviet authorities, never wavered in his commitment to the Jewish community. I was reading a description from the Rebbe, one of his talks, telling a story about his father. I just want to share it with you to hear what it meant, encapsulating what his self-sacrifice was like. And he describes my father and teacher was the chief rabbi of Ekaterinoslav, one of the largest cities in Ukraine, which supplied wheat to a large part of Russia. When it's time to prepare matzah for Pesach, buyers arrived from across the country to purchase wheat. When the government nationalized the matzah business, they asked my father to certify that the matzah was kosher for Pesach. My father replied that he would need to appoint mashkichim, supervisors, to ensure that the wheat to be used had no contact with water. If the authorities could assure him that they would not interfere with these mashkichim, he would happily certify the matzah as kosher. 
They replied that insisting on a process that would cost the government thousands of rubles just to ensure that the wheat is kosher would be viewed as an act of sabotage against the government. My father replied that the Soviet constitution protected a citizen's right to act according to their conscience and his conscience did not permit him to falsely declare the matzah's kosher. No one could force him to betray his conscience. My father then traveled to Moscow where he met with the head of the state, Mikhail Kalinin. He explained that it is inappropriate for the state to mislead the Jewish community by forcing a rabbi to, false, to testify falsely that the matzah was kosher. As a result, instructors were dispatched to all the mills in Ukraine to allow Rabbi Schneerson's supervisors a free hand and to assist them despite the additional expenses that this would entail. Now just think about this little anecdote that the Rebbe relays about his father. You could easily excuse a rabbi for certifying a product as kosher when he's threatened with this label of uh, saboteur, of sabotage against the Soviet Union. You know, punishment for sabotage could easily have earned him who knows how many years sentence in the gulag. But Rebbelevich would not be intimidated when his principles were at stake. Unlike the comedian who said, these are my principles, if you don't like them, I have others. He would not sway from his Jewish values. He was willing to lay down his life for the sake of Yiddishkeit. And that, my friends, I'll share with you another story. Once the Soviets organized a rabbinic conference in Kharkov. Kharkov is a, a, one of the big cities in Ukraine. I have personal family living in Kharkov today and I have for many years in the past. One of my cousins is the, one of the distinguished Shluchim Chabad rabbis there. But back then, when Reb Levick went to visit Kharkov, he was visited by a rabbi, Nachum Goldschmidt. It was a young man from Yekaturnislav. He's actually the great-grandfather of my nephews and nieces, my brother-in-law's grandfather. And he was a childhood friend of the Rebbe who was studying at the Chabad Yeshiva in Kharkov at the time. And he visited Reb Levick. Reb Levick told him that the government was pressuring the rabbis to proclaim that there's no religious persecution in the Soviet Union. They wanted to give off this impression that Russia was a religious safe haven. It was a paradise. And Reblevik was debating in his mind, what should he do? Should he sign the statement or not? He said, if I sign the statement, that the government, indeed, they might lighten the grip on the Jews, but in return, the rest of the world might stop pressuring the USSR to ease the plight of Russian Jews, thinking that there's no religious persecution here. And he was analyzing this question back and forth, you know, balancing, enumerating the pros and the cons. You know, it was a true conundrum because... Both options would either harm or benefit the Jewish community. And at one point he stood up, he spoke, he he decided, he was determined. He made up his mind. And he said, no, I'm not going to sign. How can I sign? Even if they threaten my life, I'm not going to sign. Because he made up his mind. He had been presented with two horrible options and he decided to go with the truth. Even if they would threaten his life. And so my brother-in-law's grandfather said that at that moment he saw that inner strength, the fortitude, resolve that Reb Levick had. No worldly intimidation could dissuade them, 
could dissuade Reb Levick from doing what was right. That was the mortal, the, 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 the moral fortitude that the resolve that this great man had. And he didn't sign. He didn't give in, he didn't capitulate, did not concede to the pressure. And there are many, many stories about his bravery and courage for the sake of preserving Jews and Judaism during that rough, tumultuous period of our history. And sadly though, the Jewish community needed the leadership of this moral and spiritual giant, but unfortunately he was imprisoned for his crimes. And he was sent off, far off, to Kazakhstan. I happened to have visited the his burial place because he passed away in exile in a city called Almaty, far, far away from his own community, far away from any Jewish community. But during that period, although he wasn't even granted paper to write on, his wife, Rebetzin Khana, who eventually got to join him, managed to manufacture on her own, using leaves, creating ink, with which he was able to write on the margins, on the side of his papers. And it's those manuscripts, those teachings that he wrote on the sidelines of his pages that we have as his scholarly annotations and, and his writings of that which survived of his teachings, much of which we don't know whatever happened with. But those books that survived, they made it to the United States eventually, and the Rebbe had those works published. And so I want to share with you one or two insights today that I think you'll find profound, fascinating, and hopefully glean some inspiration from the deep, beautiful, scholarly insights of Reb Levick. So let me share with you one. You know, we, there are general, there are four general methods of Torah teaching. Every morning we read in our prayers, or before we begin our prayers, Rabbi Yishmael Omer, the teachings of how Torah is expounded. There are various rules, 13 principles, in fact, that we read each morning. But the, there's four basic aspects to Torah teachings, which are represented by an acronym of a word, Pardis. Pardis is an acronym, it literally means an orchard. It's the orchard of Torah. But it's four letters that comprise four words. The pay is pshat, the literal simple meaning of the text. And although it's anything but simple, but it refers to the plain meaning of the word. The second is remez, the symbolic. We're talking about allusions derived from reading between the lines using tools such as gematria, the numerical value of the letters, or acronyms, rashitavis, that are formed by the words. The third letter of pardis is the word drash, drush. That's the homiletic, the interpretive meanings, right? interpretations that are not explicit in the text itself. And finally, the last letter, samach, is sod, the mystery or secret. And this method utilizes more Kabbalistic teachings to uncover the mystical or the esoteric meaning of the text. So you have the very word Pardis, which is an acronym, or take the word Shema. It was in last week's Parsha. The word, right, you look at Shema Yisrael that we say every day. It's the most important prayer of a Jewish person every day declaring 
our monotheism belief in one God. So the if you divide it into these four categories, the pshat of Shema, the literal understanding of the word Shema means to listen, to pay attention. Remez is already going a little bit deeper. To lift your eyes on high, to reflect, to ponder, to contemplate, to think deeply. The drash of Shema is our sages say, in any language. And you think that the letter Ayin is 70, the 70 languages of the world. Every language, prayer is the service of the heart. You have to connect with Almighty God in your personal way, whatever language you understand. And that's the concept of Purusha Milas, of paying attention to the words that we say. It shouldn't just be a lip service. We should understand what we're saying. So in whatever language it might be. If you want to go deeper, is the Sod. Sod, the, the mystery, the secret. If you get more mystical and esoteric, then Shema is comprised of the first two letters as Shin and Nem, which spells either Shem or Sham. So our sages are telling us by absorbing the message of Shema, we reveal that the world is not Sham distant from God, but it's a reflection of God, of Hashem, of Shem. And then you could say and connect it with the I and the 70, we said the 70 languages, or you could say 70 is is the ten sefirot, the ten divine attributes with which God created the world, plus seven days of the natural cycle of the world, God created the world in seven days. So the ten sefirot operate within this natural cycle of seven. Seven times ten is seventy. That's the letter ayin. Again, it's getting homiletic. It's getting deeper. So each of these facets, of course, is a complete area of study. But Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, in his profound teachings, he would weave seamlessly between them. And the truth is, if you look at the Rebbe's teachings, who he was inspired and influenced by his primary teacher, his father. The Rebbe followed his father's lead in this way of analyzing and expounding and teaching from Torah. And he would lecture extensively on Torah topics, weaving seamless connections between the many dimensions and aspects of Torah. So, Reb Levick particularly enjoyed the mystical and the symbolic, and you see a lot of gematria and numerology in his teachings. He was fascinated by the Torah's language, and he would delve into the composition, the syntax, the numerology, the mysticism of the Torah's texts to uncover untold layers of meaning. And he often discovered hidden codes by weaving these seamless tapestries between seemingly disconnected concepts disjointed texts, as I'm going to share with you in a moment. I'm going to share with you two samples of Rebbelevich's teachings. And I hope you'll appreciate and enjoy the bold originality and the amazing breadth of his scholarships. So please, come right back, where we'll continue with a fresh insight. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. And today we are talking about the Rebbe's father, Rabbi Levius Chakshnerson, whose yard site is on Chaf Av. And I would like to share with you some beautiful insights and teachings from Rabbi Levius Chakshnerson on the deeper, the way he would teach and expound on, on Torah. And so, I would like to begin 
with one particular teaching. You know, when word got out that the KGB, the old Soviet Union's murderous secret police force, was preparing to arrest Rebbe Yitzchak, some of his friends visited him in secret. And he shared a beautiful teaching that was most likely his parting message. And so he said, if you look at the Torah, the very first letter of the Torah is a base, Bereshus, right? Bereshus Baralekim. The beginning, God created the heaven and earth. The last letter of the Torah is Alamed, the word Le'ene Kol Yisrael, before the eyes of all of Israel. Alamed. Now these two letters spell out the Hebrew words Lev, which is heart, and Baal, which is don't. For example, uh, what do we say in Davening from Tehillim, Avtikon Tevel Baal Timot, or Mishpatim Baal Yedaum. Again, it means don't, it's a negation. So, said Rav Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, this teaches us two points. Firstly, we have to follow the Torah with all of our lave, our heart, connecting the conclusion of the Torah, the Lamed, with the immediately returning to the Bays, lave, and at the same time going from beginning to end of the Torah, we have to look at the word Baal. In order to, in order to achieve this, we have to practice Baal restraint. So if you look at the first and last letters, the Bays and the Lamed, we have these two words, Baal and Lave. Baal, don't, and Lave, heart. What was Rabbi Levi's message? If you want to serve God with all of your Lave, with all your heart, then Baal, there is something that you should not be doing. The Torah tells us, we read it in the Parsha just last week, you should be careful to do exactly as God your God instructs you. You should not veer to the right nor to the left. So Rebbelevich suggested that the first and last letters of the Torah are associated with this verse, with this passage. Baal, don't look to the right or to the left. At the letters to the right of the Beis and Lamed, nor to the letters to the left of the Beis and the Lamed. Look only at the letters Beis and Lamed. Let me explain. In the order of the written Hebrew alphabet, the letters to the right of the Beis is Aleph. The letter to the right of the Lamed is Chaf. Aleph and Chaf spell the Hebrew word Ach, which means however. Now let's look at the letters to the left of the Beis and Lamed. The letter to the left of the, le- of the Beis is Gimel. The letter to the left of the Lamed is Mem. What does that spell? Together, Gimel and Mem, these two letters spell the word Gam, which means in addition. So Rebbelevich's message was, if you want to be a complete Jew and serve God with complete heart, all you need to do is to remember this secret code of the first and last letters of the Torah, which is follow the Torah's rules meticulously. You know, this must have been, if this was his parting message, he was telling his followers, although he won't be with them, but he was ensuring his community that they would survive without him if they would simply follow the Torah's instructions and not to veer left or right, as the Torah says, And therefore he said to them, 
Baal, don't turn to the right of meticulous observance. To the right of Bayes and Lamed is the word Ach. However, that's Ach, however, which is an exclusionary cause. The Gemara tells us, Ach verak lemayet, which means it is negating, right? A person might say, well, under, under ordinary circumstances, I'll keep Torah and mitzvahs, I'll do what's right. Ach, however, under these, under this situation, it's not possible. The message of the Torah is Baal. Don't do that. Don't turn to the right and detract from the Torah's rules. Remember the first and last letter of the Torah, Bez, Bereshis, Lamed, Le'enei Kol Yisrael. What's the Torah saying? Don't. Don't do that. Don't detract from Torah. And as we read in the verse last week, don't turn to the left as well. To the left of the Bez and Lamed lies the word Gam. In addition, remember that to the left of the base is a gimel, to the left of the lamed is a mem. Gam means to add. So don't start adding. Right? The Torah says gam l'rabbis. Don't start adding to the Torah. If a person is to make that mistake, say, I'm going to add to the Torah's restrictions. The Torah forbids working on Shabbos. I'll forbid working on Friday too. I'm a Ibrahim, I'm a super religious person. Just as it's wrong to eliminate one of the Torahs, one of God's commandments, it's also wrong to create a new commandment in God's name. And this was the mistake that Chava, the very first woman, the matriarch of all of humanity made. And the Torah tells us, we read it just as we said, that you shouldn't turn right or left. We also read, don't add and don't detract from the Torah. If a person adds a, a, a personal stringency, a personal fence to the Torah, or we have rabbinic enactments, we understand those are rabbinic. We are not saying those are God's instructions. When we make life harder than necessary, when we start manufacturing commandments in the name of God, that could lead to transgressing even the authentic divine commandments. If you think of what Chava did, when the serpent, the Nachash, said, eat from the tree of the Eitzadas, the tree of good and evil. Eve said, no, God said, we're not even allowed to touch it, we'll die. What did the serpent do? Pushed Eve, pushed Chava against the tree, and she didn't die. And then she wound up eating from its actual fruit. So therefore, don't turn to the right or left of the letters Beis and Lamed. If Baal, you refuse to stray towards Ach by adding, by, by, um, by, by Ach, which is, which is, um, no, <laughs> restricting, which is the concept of eliminating, de- deleting, or Gam, adding, then Lave, the two letters again, the conclusion of the Torah and the beginning of the Torah, you'll be able to serve God with a perfect faith, with a complete heart. Now, on the face of it, we don't necessarily see the connection between these letters, the beginning and end of the Torah. 
and to turn to the right of the letters and the left of the letters. But that was Reb Levi Yitzchak Schneerson's way of teaching and expanding on the Torah. He, not only did he see the link, but he examined them backward and forward to derive this profound teaching about Jewish survival under oppression by the Soviet regime. I want to share with you another of Reb Levi's teachings. And this one is a little bit more complex because it flows seamlessly between the literal, the symbolic, the interpretive, the mystical. Remember we said that learning Torah goes through all these levels of pshat, remez, drush, and sod, which is the, the, the pardis, the orchard of Torah, through the literal understanding, the simple meaning, the pshat, the, the, sorry, the remez, then going into the search for uh, allusions that are hinted in the text, and then the, the drush, the interpretations and homiletics, and of course, the mystical so the esoteric meaning of the text. And so, in order to understand this next teaching, I want to share with you another profound aspect. There was a chamber in the Beis HaMikdash that was called the, this was a room which the high priest, the Kohanim Gedolim, would quarantine annually for seven days before Yom Kippur. So if you're sitting in quarantine now, remember the Kohen Gadol, you had good company, the Kohen Gadol would do that too, as getting ready for Yom Kippur, which my friends is around the corner. And during this time, he would prepare himself mentally and spiritually for the holy day. And so, this room was originally called the Lishkas Ha'etz, the wooden chamber because of its wooden paneling. The Gemara talks about the wood was plastered over because wood wasn't permitted to show in the Beis HaMikdash. And the Talmud tells us that um, that the chamber was previously called actually Lishkas Balvati, which is Greek for the chamber of important officials. And then it became Lishkas Ha'etz, the chamber of wood, so, you know, the, 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 the mystics go into the various reasons why it had different names. But actually its name even changed further later on where it became known as Lishkas Parhedrin or Palhedrin, depending on which version of the Talmud you're using. So this word Parhedrin was interesting because it's actually a Greek word that means assessors. And this was referring to the tax collectors in that time, that it was a, a tax collectors who were appointed for a one-year term. Now, why was it? Why was the name changed from Lishkas Ha'etz, the wooden chamber, to now being called Lishkas Parhedrin, a name relating to the tax assessors? So the Gemara tells us, because unfortunately, as Time progressed during the period of the Second Temple. We're talking about after the story of Hanukkah, when the great Maccabees, led by Judah Maccabee Yehuda, who was the hero of the Hanukkah story, he established the Hashmanayim royal dynasty. And Yehuda and his brothers indeed were very righteous, but unfortunately the descendants were corrupt. And in fact, what led to the destruction of the temple was two descendants from the Hashmanai dynasty, Aristobulus and Hercules, who were Jewish leaders, but they adopted very assimilated names. 
and they sadly got into a fight with each other, Faribal. One brought in the Roman legions, and the Roman legions said, what do we need the Jews for? We'll take over ourselves, and of course it brought in various reigns of terror, whether it was Herod's reign and others, which were, were not good and ultimately led to the temple's destruction. Whatever the case was, the Gemara tells us that the reason it was given this name, Parhedrin, was because at some stage, the position of high priest, which is supposed to be held by a righteous, pious person, became a corrupted position and was auctioned off to the highest bidder. So now you have this whole new breed of high priests that were not appointed for their piety, but for their wealth. And so this led to people who were unworthy of the position of being Kain Gadol to assume that office and enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. Now, as the Gemara says it, the name Parhedrin, which is referring to these tax assessors who were changed every 12 months to prevent people from cozying up with the tax collectors and, you know, extracting concessions. As we know, bribery and corruption at its best. So therefore, they call the chamber Parhedrin, which is the name of these tax collectors whose position would expire each year, would change because the position of high priest, the coin God, the, the God would change each year. Because a person who entered the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kedashim, not in the most refined state, would experience immediate death. And because that was the case, in fact, the Kohanim Gedolim would be tied to a string around their ankle. And if the bells on their special priestly vestitude, their clothing, was no longer making noise, then they knew this person was most likely no longer alive and they would pull him out from the Holy of Holies. And if they were pulled out of the sanctuary that way, then of course they had to replace the Kohen Gadol just as the tax collectors were replaced annually as well. So that of course is not the most, uh, what could we say? You know, on the face of it, we're learning here what the reason for the name of the Parhedrin, what, you know, first it's called Lishkasa Eitz, it's called the, the wooden chamber because it was made out of wood. And then it's called the Parhedrin because of this unfortunate chapter in our history of unqualified priests serving as Kohanim Gadolim. Bribery, corruption, paying for the position. But if we look at it a little bit deeper, Reb Levick, the Rebbe's father didn't like just the pshat, the simple understanding of why these two names were there. And he probed deeper and covered mystical links between the names and the errors that they represented. And he began by noting that Lishkas Ha'etz more accurately translates as the chi, as the tree chamber, right? Eitz is a tree, not necessarily wood, as the Talmud t- puts it. So what are trees? Trees represent longevity and durability. In his words, he says, Trees represent long life. As the verse says in Isaiah, Like the days of a tree, so are the days of my people. Says Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Shnerson, Kolzman shakatanem gedolim hayuk sheyum tzadikim. Shall we read it? 
As long as the high priests were righteous and enjoyed longevity, it was called as he it was called the whip chamber. Because the chamber, not only was it paneled with wood, but wood refers to the durability and longevity of the tree. However, once the high priests became corrupt, so God responded in a different way. When they were no longer so righteous, and it was, they didn't enjoy their longevity. Now, Oz Nikras Halishka Lishkas Parhedrin. That's when this room's name changed from Lishkas Ha'etz, the wood chamber, or the tree chamber, to Parhedrin chamber, the name of the tax assessors. Why? He says this name, Parhedrin, if we analyze it, if we dissect it, it actually is three words. Par, Har, Din. Par is related to the word Pirud, which means separateness. Har is a mountain, and Din is judgment. All of these refer to severity, divine judgment. And so because the position of the high priests became corrupt, God responded with severity and justice. So the sages changed its name from Lishkas Ha'etz to Lishkas Perhedrin. But what was he saying? Let's understand it. The word par, meaning separation, like pirud, divisiveness. That's severity divides and disintegrates. The next word of parhedrin, har, is a mountain. A mountain is hard and unmoving. And then we have din, which is judgment. So God's judgment was harsh, it was unmoving. And it resulted in the early disintegration of the high priest's life, that they died on Yom Kippur when they went into the Holy of Holies. So, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Schneerson was teaching us a very profound insight. He was telling us that these two names, they refer to the role of the high priests. There's the aspect of Lishka Sa'etz, the wood, which refers to the longevity. And he's telling us that the tree's sturdy longevity alludes to the uninterrupted progress, he says, of a tzaddik, of a righteous person. A tzaddik is an unblemished individual, a man and woman whose devotion to God is a straight line of continual ascent, a journey of constant growth and achievement. So the name Lishkas Ha'etz, the wooden chamber is alluding to the Kohen Gadol's responsibility to advance the work of the righteous. But then of course things changed. And that refers to another dimension of that room's name, Lishkas Parhedrin. Besides for meaning assessors, as the Talmud tells us, if we dissect the word Parhedrin, we see that it's Par, Har, Din, which is a reference to the Baal Teshuva, a person who struggles in life spiritually. Those people who stray from the proper path, and then find their way back, the Baal Tshuva. A person not only must return in terms of their behavior, but they have to reinvent their character, their persona. To move forward in a spiritual journey, the Baal Tshuva cannot self-define in terms of their past, of their previous persona. 
person has to break with the past. We have to become a completely new person. Every night before we go to sleep, we have a Hasidic custom to say, tomorrow will be a better day. By disavowing a previous day, my mistakes, my shortcomings, my flaws of the past, and adopting a new self, a new identity that today will be better than yesterday. And when today concludes, tomorrow will be better than today. And so I realized that my past behavior is not just because I made mistakes in the past that doesn't define my future. I can break with my previous behavioral patterns. I can change. I can become about Teshuvah and return to God. So the Kohen Gadol, and in that sense, each one of us has that element, that aspect in us. As we are leaders of our own lives, we are leaders of our community, we are leaders of our family. And therefore, we have to support that journey. The Parhedrin officers had no tenure after a year, their appointment would expire. Just like those tax assessors that were called Parhedrin. So the new name of the building, of this room, represents Parhedrin. There was a new tax assessor, or a different person. And we ourselves also, the Balchuva is a person who says, I'm no longer defined by my past flaws, mistakes, errors. I move forward, I'm a different person. I'm not the same person who made the mistakes. That's my old persona. Now I'm a new person. And so if we look at these three, the breakup of this word parhedron, we have, we have a, a new way of understanding. The par is pirud, separateness. A balchuva is a person who uses self-restraint to set distinctions between right and wrong. My past, perhaps I committed things that were wrong, but I'm resolving to become better in my future. Like the Hara mountain, we make ironclad resolutions that are unwavering like a mountain. You want to make sure that you're going to stick to that diet or to your exercise regimen or to your spiritual growth and development. You have to ensure that you have that unwavering discipline like a mountain that can't move. And the third Aspect of that word is din. Par, har, din. Din is judgment. We judge our past behavior honestly. We have to objectively arrive to a true state of repentance, of changing my past. That's the meaning, the different angle of looking at parhedrin. So this was Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson's way of seeing that, yes, in the past I may have made mistakes, but I have a much brighter future ahead. Failure is not getting knocked down. Failure is only if I stay down. And so, my friends, this these two teachings of Rav Levi Yitzchak that I shared with you, first one demonstrating his belief that anyone who follows the Torah meticulously could serve God with a complete heart. Don't swerve right or left. Don't digress. Don't deviate. If you have the lave and if you have the bowel, you'll have the lave. And here we see the idea that even the greatest sinner could have a bright and beautiful future. And this was Rabbi Yitzchak's way. Even though he was a sophisticated realist as you go through his teachings, but he understood the realities of his day as the chief rabbi of Ukraine, going through tumultuous period as he was from 1909 to 1939 to 1941, the period when he was leading his community. But he also refused to, to 
see just the reality of the time, but also to see the potential. And sadly, in his time, there were many young Jews who were swept up in the idealism of communist, the communist movement that group is called the Yvesekzia. And I'd like to share with you a little story about one particular Jew, although he was part of that, how Rabbi Yitzchak embraced him and how he changed him. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 IFM and Rabbi Ari Kievman. And I promised you a story to conclude before we end today's presentation. Chafav, the yard site of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, father of the Lubavitch Rebbe. And as I mentioned, there was a movement, a group called the Yivisekzia. These were Jewish people who served as KGB informants against their co-religionists. And, uh, you know, my grandmother of blessed memory had a personal interaction with a particular guy named David Ichader Musser. My grandmother actually worked for the KGB. She had a secretarial position, but in reality, she was a double agent working for Schneerson family, for Chabad. And she would feed back the information. Unfortunately, this religious looking guy named David Itcha would come and bring information. And one day he came in with a whole list of all the Chabad activists in Moscow. And as she knew their lives were in danger, she took a glimpse of the list. She went quickly by metro throughout Moscow, which is a very big city, informing lots of these people personally, their lives were in danger. They have to pick up and go. And so did she. With my father was a young kid at the time and his siblings, and they moved off to a place called Samarkand. Along the way on the train ride, my father's grandmother passed away and was thrown off the train. It was crazy times. The story I wanted to tell you is about a KGB informant. His name was Chaim, and he lived on the top floor of Rebleibik's building. And his he officially served as the building manager, but unfortunately, his job was to inform the authorities about any illegal activity going on in the home of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson. But one day, Chaim and met Rabbi Levi, and everything changed. And the story goes that it was one night in 1935, a woman arrived at Rabbi Levi's home and told him that her daughter and son-in-law were high-ranking members of the Communist Party. They were afraid to have a Jewish wedding in public, but they trusted Rav Levick to conduct a private ceremony in secret at his own home. And so Rav Levick agreed, and the couple arrived that very night. Rav Levick prepared everything needed for a proper chuppah, but he had to recruit a minion in the middle of the night. He could only invite Jews who could be trusted not to inform the authorities. And this is late at night, you can't just send off a WhatsApp message. How's he gonna get the minion together? So he managed to recruit nine Jewish men, congregants who he managed to, you know, come pay a visit to him. But they still needed one more. Couldn't find a tenth man at that late hour. So he asked one of his followers to go upstairs and call Chaim, the building manager. When, you know, they, everyone was shocked. Chaim? I mean, this guy? He's an informant. Rebbe said he's a Jew. We need him for the minion. When Chaim came, he was totally taken aback. And uh, Reb Levick told him, I want you to serve as the 10th man of the minion so that this bride and groom could get married here according to Jewish law. Chaim looked at him and said, me, the informant. Reb Levick looked, responded and said, yes, absolutely. You're a Jew and we need you. Chaim ran around. He drew all the curtains, made sure the room was tightly shut, that this was truly clandestine. And the 
chuppah, the wedding canopy was set up, the couple was married. And the ceremony ended, everyone, you know, hurried to vacate the premises. But Chaim, he stayed behind and he approached Reb Levick and he produced his Communist Party cards. And he said, it's true that I'm spying on you, which you obviously knew anyhow. But he said, from now on, Rabbi, I am with you and I don't want to be separated from your way of life. And he said, this card of the Communist Party that he was holding is worthless when I'm with you. And the man concluded that he started going, the story goes, he started going to shul. At first people were hesitant, they were skeptical of him. But eventually he said, don't be afraid of me. I'm a Jew just like you. I've changed my ways. I've done teshuva. And he became a Jewish activist, working to enable Jews in the Soviet Union to remain Jewish. And my friends, when I think of this story, how Reb Levick was able to turn somebody around. That was his personality. He shaped his son and inspired and influenced him to become the Rebbe. And sadly, after his arrest, Reb Levick would never set foot in his home, t- in the town of his leadership, Katrinislav ever again. With his arrest, it appeared that the communists had won. The Nazis further destroyed what the what was left of, of Yekaterinoslav's Jewish community. The community suffered tremendous loss. But Reb Levick's son, who would become the Rebbe, picked up from where his father left off. And for years, the Rebbe sent secret emissaries behind the Iron Curtain to maintain regular contact with the Jewish community. The Rebbe preserved the embers of the flames that his predecessor, that his father and father-in-law had stoked. Despite the authorities' best efforts, an underground network of Judaism thrived throughout the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union fell, the Rebbe openly sent many emissaries to the former Soviet Union. There are hundreds of Chabad Shluchim who are right now meeting in Almatan, Kazakhstan to commemorate the Rebbe's father's yard site. And these are activists who have reignited the flame of Yiddishkeit in the former Soviet Union. And today the Jewish community is active, it's robust, it's thriving. And if we think of that city where Reb Levick served as rabbi for more than three decades, Dnepropetrovsk, today it boasts a large and active Jewish community. In fact, the Menorah Center, which is a huge Jewish community center in the middle of the city, is the largest Jewish center in all of Europe. From its viewing balcony, interestingly, you could pick up, you could see the dreary building where Blavik was taken as a prisoner. And if you compare the two buildings, you could clearly see which of the two has prevailed. Reblevik's community, the Jewish community of the Nepropetrovsk and throughout the former Soviet Union is alive and flourishing, whereas the old Soviet prison is derelict, it's decrepit. And so, this, my friends, is the finest postscript to the story of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Schneerson. His life did not end with his untimely passing. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson and his wife, Rebbe Tzanchana, raised a son who oversaw the greatest Jewish renaissance in the history of our people. And this Jewish re- reawakening is alive right here in our community as it is throughout the world and as it is in the very city where he was arrested and sent to his death. And so, no doubt, on his yard site, 
he's shepping, deriving the greatest nachas as he gazes down from above and cherishes and appreciates and sees the great work that is still going on there. Please God, we all merit to see the ultimate Jewish renaissance, the coming of Mashiach speedily in our days. I want to take this opportunity to wish each and every one of you a good and meaningful Shabbos. Remember, carpe diem, seize every moment.